Hello and welcome to the Life on This podcast. Today we are speaking to the wonderful Kate Sevilla. She is an author and a expert on the world of work who has just written a book uh, which is all about how to work and not go mad, how to have a work life which is satisfying but which isn't stressful. As she puts it, it's uh, for people who uh, don't want to cry on the loo at work. And it is a wonderful book, which is so timely now that work is so in the air. And uh, I love the conversation with her uh, at the Life on This Project. We're really, you know, a big part of what we do is going into companies and trying to help make the workplace more human, uh, a bit more, you know, a bit more in line with people's souls, a bit more in line of what we're all about. And uh, this conversation really added to it. And so, welcome to the podcast, Kate. Thank you. Uh, how do you pronounce your surname? So it, I say I now say Sevilla. I grew up saying Sevilla because I grew up, yeah, <laughs> in the states, and even my family mispronounced it. And then I I moved over here, and every single person was like, "Oh, oh babes, you mean Sevilla?" I'm like, "Yeah, sorry, <laughs> got my own name wrong." So now I say now I say Sevilla. Bit rich of the Brits to like school schoolman had it pronounced. That is amazing. You got you got surname shamed by I, oh people, my god all of the time by people who'd gone on sort of like easy jet say, holidays to Sevilla. Who say fish fillet? Tell me how to say my name right. And then when you go back to your family, who uh, do you then go and sort of do they find it a bit weird that you pronounce your surname differently to them? Uh, I think so, but thankfully it's just, it's my sister and my, and my dad who, uh, who I still have the same last name as, and my dad's just like, like, cause I think, I swear his family say it wrong as well. They say, say like Sevilla and I'm like, that's not right. There's no I at the end. Uh, and, and my mom has a, has a different last name now. So, uh, I'm, I'm, they, they might find it weird. But uh, that hasn't that hasn't come up in one of our family mm. arguments yet. So, Sophilia <laughs> sounds like something you take medication for. Right. Uh, <laughs> really maybe, maybe, I know. Maybe Matt Hank. And today we are so for listeners, we are interviewing uh, Kate Sevilla about uh, your new uh, book, which is all about the world of the workplace and how to work uh, without losing your mind, which is something which I think probably everyone has uh, done, both worked and lost their mind, and particularly in the past two years had a little bit of that. And it's also what we can get into is someone in the UK has uh, been, got themselves into a workplace indiscretion, and that is uh, old Matt Hancock, who our Minister uh, for Health, who uh, got uh, uh, caught in a, a workplace embrace. So th th this topic could not be more relevant. James, you're in the US. Have you seen that story? I literally saw a tiny bit about it this morning when I checked the BBC. I was, it said something like, Matt Hancock Kiss probably broke social distancing rules. And I thought getting anywhere near Matt Hancock is a, a rule break for me, honestly. Not the, yeah, not, not the, the person that you would want to, to kiss. I, I All I saw was a headline that says, 
Matt Hancock apologizes. And I, I was like, I can't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'm like, for which thing? Because it's not <laughs> the thing that he should be apologizing for. That's for sure. So the great thing about that snog is it, it because it's, it's caught on CCTV footage. Uh, OK, so there's a question of how does the sun get CCTV <laughs> footage from within uh, the halls funny. of government? Mm -hmm. But because it's on CCTV footage and I think maybe the nature of the snog, it looks as I as like caught on the, uh, like a nightclub camera and it's got real teenage disco vibes to it with a with a pretty gross hand on the bottom from uh, old uh, Matt Hancock. Really? But, how many times have you watched this video? Uh, I've, annoyingly, I've only seen the stills, but I uh, I did do that thing where you go on YouTube and you're like, oh, it's a video and it's no, it's a it's a video which contains a stills. Please tell us that before I click. Thank you very like much. Every video now, it's so hard to find the thing, the stupid story that you're actually trying to see. <laughs> so before we get onto the week, I'm already, I'm already loving this chat, but we've got a question that we ask uh, all of our uh, guests first. And then what was the religious, spiritual, philosophical background to your childhood? Oh, interesting. Um, so I was raised Catholic. Um, my dad was uh, part of the Seventh-day Adventist church, which I don't know anything about. And he didn't actually, I don't think it was a, other than the music side of things and singing in a, singing in a chorus, I don't think it was a, a big part of his everyday life. Um, and as far as Catholicism was concerned, I mean, we would go to church Christmas Eve, I think maybe at Easter. Um, but we did like, you know, catechism and uh, I had my first communion, which when I look back at the photos of, I look like I'm not taking it seriously at the, at the, at the time. I'm like, huh, she knew. Um, yeah. So that, that was, I think it was very much more of like a, when your grandparents are in town or we, we went to Florida to go see them, we would then go to church. It's interesting because I'm glad in a way that I was kind of brought up with with some sort of framework, some sort of morality, I guess you could you could kind of call it. I don't know. And but now I'm like, I, I just had a I just had a son a few months ago. And I had somebody say, Oh yeah, we're having our our boy christened the next next week or whatever. And I was like, Oh, that never even occurred to me. Never even occurred to me. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, I'm not a, I am not a practicing Catholic anymore. I think when my parents got divorced when I was 12 and my mom received a letter from the church being like, so you can come to church, but like, you can't receive communion anymore. She was like, we're out. <laughs> yeah. 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 Isn't that interesting? Sorry. You broke a promise to God. You can no longer eat this wafer. <laughs> Luckily, they were really focused on the important things, uh, the Catholic Church. Yeah, uh, really eye on the ball there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I haven't been to I haven't been to church in a long time. I think the last time I was in a Catholic church was for my grandmother's funeral a few years ago. And even that was weird. It's strange being back. Yeah. And then is there something if you look at religions of any type, it could be Roman Catholic, it could be whatever it might be. Is there one thing from religion or congregations that you think uh, it would be good to have more of in this sort of secular world? The idea of having a, a common purpose and having a, a sort of common understanding and the idea that you should love your neighbor. I think 
there are there are parts and and principles of some and a lot of religions there's there is a lot of good in in a lot of religions <laughs> and there's a lot of bad in a lot of religions as well but i think that that idea of having having a common purpose and and treating people with kindness at its core that all religions basically share. I think if we all had more of that, we would all be a lot better off. I thought you were going to say for a moment, the judgy letters. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I think, you know, we have enough of those already, right? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, what a thing to receive at that time. And you're like, oh, I've got a letter from the church, probably asking me if I need some help, uh, if I want to... you know, someone to yeah. speak to. Oh, okay. Different angle. Uh, James, <laughs> for you. Uh, what are your ref- Christ for you? <laughs> uh, what are your uh, re- reflections on, on that sort of spiritual background? Yeah, I think what you said about common purpose really resonates. I, I think a lot of people are looking for some sense of shared purpose in life and probably in their work as well. Like it, it's something that I think energizes good organizations, a sense of shared purpose, as well as the kind of the spiritual life. It probably helps professionally as well. So I, that that certainly resonates with me, what you said. Uh, well, look, you, James, like the uh, master uh, interviewer you are, you've gone and picked up a theme in one part and elegantly laced it into where we're going. Uh, that, that? So I'll tell you what, it was a lot smoother than that, than that metaphor, which involved lacing something into a direction of travel, which is just very hard to imagine how that would work unless you are God <laughs> himself uh, interlacing time and space. Uh, and, and in a way, aren't we all? Uh, so you've just written this awesome book about work. And what I loved about it was, uh, should I tell you what the honesty it was about uh, work and how hard it is. I think so much of what we get about work is this hustle culture, Gary V, uh, you've got to be your job. Uh, if, By the way, if you haven't, if you don't know who Gary V is, well, well done. You're living a good life. <laughs> uh, he's a, a LinkedIn work hustle uh person uh, <laughs> and yeah and you start off which there is uh, one element that has stayed the same and has often been amplified stress bosses are still mad at maddening colleagues are still profoundly irritating balancing family and work is still daunting uh, and how to progress in our careers without burning burning out is a huge question that so many of us are searching for an answer to hello fellow Lou Cryer. Why did you feel the need to go and uh, write this book? Yeah, um, I, I mean, I wrote it quite selfishly, really. because <laughs> I was like, how, how do you work without losing your mind? Because I had um, a really stressful uh, series of jobs um, over the course of a few years, um, which included, uh, I don't know if, if your listeners are familiar with Top Gear, but I, I left BuzzFeed UK. And then I went to go work at a startup that was founded by Jeremy Clarkson, Richard Hammond and James May, which is as weird as it probably sounds. Uh, I don't even have a UK driver's license. So the fact that I I was working. Can we stop the interview and just have you signed NDAs with them? Oh, I don't even remember. This was like in 2016. You rem- like there's got to be some uh, stories that you can share. What what was the startup? It was called Drive Tribe. 
and it was like a, a community for motorheads basically. But it, what was interesting about it for me is that they wanted to have like this, um, an editorial team. They wanted to like create their own, their own content. And they were, I was like, look, I don't know anything about cars really. I liked to watch Top Gear back in the day, but I don't know anything about motoring. And they're like, no, that's fine. You run editorial teams. So, you know, build us an amazing editorial team. And I did, but <laughs> it was, it was pretty, it was pretty crazy. I think it still exists in some capacity. And as far as I know, they're doing quite well, but it was weird. It was really weird. And I think the CEO at the time was a very stressful man to work for. So there were just too many egos in, in one room. It, it was very odd. I was the only female director. Yeah. <laughs> and I should have known better because when there was a, the, the one other female director that interviewed me, by the time I started, she was gone. <laughs> and I really should have probably been like, huh, wonder why she left that's really surprising that they didn't have a work culture that was more welcoming it, to women it's, it's probably because there were so many sort of people of color and gay people there yeah. that they couldn't have a woman as it well it was just you know so diverse it was shocking <laughs> that, uh, that i didn't quite didn't quite fit in um, there were people there who drove mercedes there were people there who drove bmws we had something for everyone yes, there was everyone had a different car that they liked and everyone's opinions were respected um it, <laughs> yeah i mean you know i wasn't from like a harassment standpoint or anything i wasn't i wasn't harassed there was none of that it was just there was just too many assholes there and that's what the problem was it was just no one listened. I felt like no one knew what they what they were doing. And the three guys, they weren't even like the problem, really. They were um, they're exactly how you expect. My my theory with all kind of celebrity stakeholders like that, and specifically, you know, those three guys, they haven't had to evolve because when you you kind of become very famous at a certain age, people just are accommodating and everyone walks on eggshells around you. You don't have to evolve, you don't have to treat people decently because everyone just kind of responds in a different way to where they kind of absorb your behavior and you never have to kind of learn. So in that respect, they were very much kind of how you would expect them to be. Um, and, you know, it was, it was fine. <laughs> it was fine. I didn't get punched in the face. Uh, <laughs> uh, Richard once made me a tea. It was all right. You know, so that was great. I mean, it was after a pretty shitty meeting. So yeah. you were writing this book for you because work was, you just thought work was stressful. Yeah, I went from that job and then I was working at Google and that was a, a very, very difficult experience. Not because I think the company as a whole is terrible to work for there. I know lots of people who really, really enjoy working there and I wanted to continue working there. I just didn't want to continue working on the team that I was in. I had an extremely, extremely difficult time there. Um, and some of that was because of the team. A large part of that was because uh, the people I was working for but also, um, you know, I had a lot of my own stuff that I was bringing to the party that I wasn't totally aware of. And I had to really work through that while I was there. Um, and then unfortunately, the next job that I went to, uh, the company shut down about four months into me being there in a very spectacularly awful way that completely played out on social media. They just like stopped paying people, basically. And it was after that that I was like... <laughs> I cannot go back and work for anyone else full time. Uh, I've kind of had it and I was trying to figure out what it is that I was going to do. And I 
I think on my phone, I had a list of like things that I had learned uh, over the last few years about work. And I thought, oh, maybe I could turn those into some articles or maybe one day that could be a podcast. And then eventually maybe it could be a book. And then I just kind of had to be like, you know, cut the crap. The thing that you really want to do is to write a book. And so that's kind of how this, this idea for this, this book came to be is essentially what I needed to read at various points in my career. <laughs> and so we're not going to sort of inquire that maybe like the common denominator in all these awful workplaces is you, but, but that's for another. No, but it, it, but I think <laughs> oh, I even no, say okay. that oh, in wow. the book is that you take yourself with you wherever you go. Right. And you have to own up to, okay, if I'm having a really difficult time everywhere that I'm going, why is that? Is it that every single person I'm working for is a maniac? I think in my case, actually had quite bad luck working for a lot of maniacs, but also I took a lot of things very personally. My identity was totally wrapped up in, in my job. My kind of work-life balance was completely off. Um, and I had to work through that and own up to it and realize, you know, okay, these are all the things that I can control. And then these are all the other things that I can't control and to learn how to kind of sit in the discomfort of that. But you're, no, you're absolutely right. Like you are the common denominator in all of your life situations. It's true. And unless you are, can realize that and own up to your own stuff, you're going to have a hard time everywhere until you figure that out. And and you you make that point in in the book, not the sort of point that I was making that it was your fault that that company <laughs> went bust. We go and bring all of uh, our own stuff with us. I look back at you know my previous like different jobs I've done at different stages. There is the the situation that you're in, but like as we get older, as we go and sort of reflect more, you know, you realise that all of these other psychodramas are playing out. James, when you work in a slightly unusual place and that you're sort of running a congregation, you are clergy, but you obviously go and deal with your congregants sort of bring their work issues into them. Like what are some of the things that you're, some of the observations that you have about the, like the impact of the modern work world on your congregants? What are some of the sort of issues that they're bringing in? It's such an interesting question because I am literally the worst person to ask that question to because I've been thinking a little bit over the last few months about how unusual my career has been, given that I have been in education, academia, or like this re religious vocation all my life. I have never worked a, quotes, normal job. And so the, the closest I got was being a high school teacher. And what you're saying, Kate, about you take your stuff with you and you have to own up to the stuff you bring. I was a terrible high school teacher and it was totally my fault. Yeah, I had an awful boss as well. Like my supposed mentor was an awful, awful mentor for me at the time. And it was a terrible fit. But also I had totally the wrong mindset. And to, so I, I was like, yeah, when I was nodding along in pain when you were saying that, I was like, yeah, I caused a lot of those problems in that workplace. So I think that that's that's really important but it's it's interesting that the things that my members come to me with about their work life are not so much questions about i have a difficult manager or i have this specific problem it's this work is doesn't fit who i want to be it's not the life story i want to be telling 
that's the thing they come to me about that I'm not satisfied in terms of how this aligns with my deepest values. That's when people will occasionally talk to me. And so that is something that I've seen a lot is it's not just the day to day navigating the challenges of work. It's what our work says about us, especially given it's such a big part of our lives. The fact that they're coming to you and they're already at that point just shows how much thought and self-reflection that they've put into that because, and I, I write about getting to this point in the book of, you know, asking yourself what it is that you actually want and not so much. Yes. It's how, where do you want to be in five years time, but more so how do you want to feel in your work? How do you want to feel in your life? And thinking about those two things as one and thinking of ourselves as a whole integrated being, um, not just the work self and, and the home self, um, but thinking about, you know, what, what are we doing? <laughs> like, what are we actually doing? And how do we, how does it make us feel? Um, I think, is, have you found that your, your members have been really struggling with that, particularly in this last kind of year, where perhaps more people have been at home, if they've been lucky enough, quote unquote, to, to work from home? You're totally right about that. It's caused a lot of them to reevaluate their careers. Not just, I think the change in routine has prompted people to think, why are we doing things in this way? If I can stay at home all the time, you know, a friend of mine posted on Facebook that, that they've had to go to work, to work in the office for however many hours for the first time in like 14 months. And they came home and just cried because they never wanted to do it again. And they were doing their job perfectly well in the park and in the coffee shop. So why the hell did they need to do that? So that has been a big question, but it's also, I find that breaks in routine very often cause people to reassess because they can't just go on autopilot. And this has been a huge break in everyone's routine. So a lot of people are thinking, why am I even doing this job? Honestly, Kate, I'm thinking about that with my own job sometimes. We've had to redo everything that we do. So, so it, yeah, I have found that, absolutely. Yeah. Gosh, it's what is life at the moment? Well, the answer <laughs> everything. Like, you've got the answer to this question. What, what so for people who haven't read the book, like what what are some of those things that you learned that you you want to convey? Yeah, I think one of the biggest things is just trying to get people to think more about how their work actually makes them feel, to take work stress seriously. Um, and I and I talk about the fact that, you know if you are not paying attention to the kind of stress and you're just passing it off as, well, this is just the nature of my job. Um, particularly if you work in tech or in, in an industry like that, you're just kind of told, well, this is just the nature of what it's like to work here. It's a fast paced working environment. And we all, you know, we're a family here and we just give it our all and we, you know, work all hours, yada, yada, yada. Um, if you just kind of accept that, but you're actually very, very stressed, your body will tell you, um, and it's easy to forget that because I actually did a talk for Google a couple of weeks ago and I had a terrible stomach ache beforehand <laughs> and I couldn't figure out why. And then I was like, oh my God, I'm literally giving a talk and where I talk about the fact that if you're not paying attention to your stress, your body will let you know. And that's literally what's happening to me. Like some of this stuff is so hard <laughs> to remember and, and absorb. Um, but I think a big thing is, is taking your feelings about your work 
and your stress seriously and getting into a headspace where you can, you know, properly kind of get some perspective on what it is with your, your job that you can control and what it is that you cannot control. Um, asking yourself what you really properly want out of your, your life and out of your job and how you want to feel in those things. And what is it that you need to be doing uh, or that you can start doing now to get to that point rather than putting it off and being like, oh, like later, later, I, I can't do that now because it just gets later and later and later in the future. And um, there's no point in prolonging <laughs> uh, the, the kind of wait to do what it is that you actually feel like you want to do. I think that question of stress is so interesting because, and you make this point in the book that often when we're feeling stressed, we think that, or it's quite easy to think that it's our fault that something is happening. And obviously, as you say, you've got to take responsibility for what you're bringing. But there is also, if a job is set up where you are constantly feeling stressed, there is the things that you bring to it, but also like look at the structure uh, around you and, you know, that assumption, oh, everyone's a bit stressed here. Why does it have to be like that? The uh, yeah, like what are the things which can go and change? I and I don't know how long it's gonna last, but I have really over the past two weeks just decided to not give a shit in hopefully a way that I think is positive. But just being really calm for two weeks felt very weird. Like being in a space of just being like, oh. I'm just, uh, you know, I'll, I'll try to do all those things. I, I stopped doing a load of stuff. I canceled a load of things. And I was like, oh, I, I'm just doing uh, an amount, which uh, I, I will probably get me a bit uh, less far, uh, you know, uh, a bit, I was going to say less fast, but then I'm slower. seems to be the right word to say there. <laughs> but yeah, we just assume that stress is, like something which is inherent in work, but it doesn't have to be. There's uh, Tony Robbins. Uh, I went to a seminar of his and uh, he said, it's like, I, I know uh, he was talking about how men, he's like, oh yeah, and at work, we don't get, we don't get scared. Oh no, because you're a man, you know, you don't have fear. You just get stressed. You just get stressed. And, and we're hiding so many different emotions behind that word stress. So, I, I just love to, if you could even unpack that even more, like, uh, cause you've got various different tips for how to deal with it and like how to notice it. And so, yeah, please like, you know, go and, uh, share, <laughs> share, share on stress. Um, I think it was interesting what you were saying about, you know, I've just decided not to give a shit for the, <laughs> for two weeks. I had someone uh, at an event yesterday say, okay, well, if I'm feeling burnt out in, in my job, um, and I feel like I need a break, like what, what do I do? And I was just like, well, you know, if you're in a position where you can speak to your manager, your team and be like, I'm having a difficult time. I feel like I need to, you know, take on less work, whatever, whatever it is that you feel that you need and can ask for. If you're in a position to be able to do that, wonderful. If not half asset, like one of the most useful things that uh, my first therapist that I had uh, when I was younger said to me when I was taking my job at Starbucks very seriously, too seriously. Those lattes have got to be right. I, I, honestly, Come on. I was, That's what I, I want. was a shift supervisor and I took it very seriously. And she was like, okay, so what if you didn't give 110% every time? 
what if you backed off to 75%? Do you think that anyone would even notice? And I was like, "Mm, probably not. And so I genuinely think like when you're feeling really stressed, if you're not in a position at work where you can speak up and be listened to crucially um, or have that kind of transparent conversation with the people that you're working for, put in less effort for a bit, give yourself a damn break, like show up to the meetings that you need to show up to make sure that you hit your deadlines. So you're not raising any eyebrows or get fired or whatever. But a lot of times we are, we have no idea where good enough is what uh, actual su- success looks like because we're all just achieving so much. We've just like blown past that. Our kind of internal uh, thermometer, whatever you want to call it for good enough is completely broken. So if you actually just take your foot off the gas a bit and give yourself a damn break and put in 75%, 50%, I promise you, probably no one's even going to notice because you're showing up to where you need to be. You're turning in the work you need to turn in. Like, I think that that would make a huge difference to a lot of people. If you just go, maybe I just need to not give as much of a shit for, for a couple of weeks. It's quite funny that even, so I'm just gonna say, even though I said in quite a sort of triumphant way, as though I was a sort of, some sort of Zen master who had uh, broken through to the next level of uh, perception and said, you know, give less of a shit. The moment you started characterizing that as just, you know, only give us 75%. There was a bit inside me, which is like, oh no, I'm exposed. I'm not good enough. I'm not doing it. And it is this sort of internal turmoil of like, you put a label on it. And I was like, oh, I was instantly I having that struggle. I think it's actually 85% that I've been giving. Yeah. Oh, oh no, no, the stuff I'm doing I is still care. really good. What I've done is I've changed my attitude to it. It's uh <laughs> It's this and that's the thing. I don't know. It's like, I don't, what voice is that, which is telling me it's not necessarily one that I I want. And that, and that finding out where the, what the source of that voice is, I think it is, it is so important that you can't stop burning yourself out until you figure out why you are doing it anyway. Why, what is at the core of your need to overwork yourself? And it sounds Freudian. I am a big fan of psychotherapy, but it's like, who were you trying to please? Where is this coming from? Where, where did you learn this type of work ethic? And a lot of times you look at your parents, you go, oh, <laughs> not always, but a lot of times, a lot of the people that I interviewed for the book were like, yeah, I definitely learned this from my mom or it's a generational thing. Or, you know, I really looked up to my dad growing up and he was a heart surgeon and was never home, you know, it's all for it. Yeah, parents, religion, school, it's so funny you should say that song because I, I was listening to you, Kate, and I my rational mind was going, yes, this sounds like a very wise thing to do. You don't have to give 110% all the time. And my soul was screaming. It was like, you not cannot. <laughs> How dare you even consider not giving your all yeah. to your vocation? That's outrageous. Can you imagine how you, how would you look at yourself in the mirror if you ever just pulled off again? And, you know, yeah, that's something that you carry with you. Uh, I wonder some part of this conversation. So I totally think this is wonderful. And I, I'm taking notes right now for how to change my relationship with my work. And at the same time, some part of me thinks, well, there are a lot of people out there who don't have the opportunity. They have to do whatever job they have. And not everyone can make a five-year career plan and be like, well, I'd like to be a thought leader in two years and write my book, you know, like, <laughs> 
not everyone has a career even. Most people just have a job and it's what they, how does this sort of way of looking interact with honestly most people's lives where they don't have the education, the opportunities to, to make their best life through work? No, exactly. And, and thank you for bringing that up because I, part of the reason I wanted to write this book and the way that it's positioned and the way that I wrote it is that we have enough lean in books. We have enough, you know, four day work week, whatever the hell, like there's so many management books that are basically just like snake oil salesmen. Like not everyone has to hustle. Not everyone has to, I, I wrote this mainly for people who just want to go to work without losing their minds. They don't want to be CEO. They don't want to f- like be the founder of the next startup that's on the cover of whatever. Like they just want to go to work, make some money. And then actually, and then they realize, oh, you know, what? actually I'm quite fulfilled. Just, you know, making my earrings on Etsy at the weekend and just showing up and doing my job and getting a paycheck. So there's that level of, this is for people who are just having a hard time at work. That can be if you are a super high achiever, but equally, if you just want to show up and get a paycheck without, you know, losing your mind in the process, that is totally fine as well. And also you're right. There are people who just need to make a certain amount of money every time. They don't have the luxury of going, uh, yeah, I, I think that I want to sit down and talk to my manager. If you're doing shift work in retail, chances are, uh, if you're if you're not doing the job of your dreams or whatever, or if you're just kind of in the situation where you know <laughs> that if you try to speak up about what your hopes and dreams are with your career, they're going to be like, "What the hell are you talking about?" Like, not everyone is in that sort of position, and and you're right that, that is very important to acknowledge. And I do talk about that a bit in the book, where it's like, look, not everyone is in a position where they can go, "Where, where do I want to be in five years?" or and there is an element of kind of like guilty career privilege uh, element to this, where it's just kind of like, well, how nice for you that you even have the option to be like, I don't like my job. I want to get another one. And especially in this, the environment over the last year and the economy being what it is, it's like, not all of us, I, I got asked a lot about like career change. And I just was like, you know, if you're in a position where you feel like you can find another job and keep the job that you have, that's wonderful. But equally, I think that we also need to uh, think about the fact that you, as I said before, you take yourself with you wherever you go. And while it might sound great to, I think I want to go into this other industry, or I'm really unhappy in this job, and I think I really want to go into this other thing, you know, put in the research, talk to people who are actually, you know, in, in that job, keep in mind that when you change industry or you do a complete career change, a lot of times you're going to take a financial hit because you're entry level now. It doesn't matter that you had, it doesn't necessarily matter that you had 20 years experience doing this other thing. If you're doing something that's a complete 180 from where you are, they're not going to go, well, you're, you're, you know, 45. So we're going to put you in this salary. That's not how it works. Right. Um, so it's like making sure that you're not just trying to escape the current situation that you're in by creating this fantasy that when you go over here, that it's going to be so much better. Um, I've gone off piece. I'm sorry. I feel like I just, <laughs> just went on a, a rant, but. Um, you were saying there is that there's, I always feel that when people, uh, when someone leaves a job, cause it was just getting too much and you know, they don't seem to be in that much of a hurry to get back into work because their previous job 
pay them so well and they're like oh i'm fun employed at the moment Shut and you're up. like well <laughs> that is a, you do have to be aware that you know nice that's that's not really a thing yeah and that's something which i uh, identify with of like sometimes looking at uh, so i got diagnosed with adhd sort of three years ago and so i'd be in this position where i'd go and try something new and i'd love it and whatever it might be and then i'd still encounter the same stuff, which was in the last thing that I did. And I'd be like, oh no, well, this isn't for me or the next it and you. And so in, if you are not doing the work to actually go and find out like what are the things that you're bringing, then you end up to paraphrase Horace, they change the company logo, but not themselves. Those who get a career change. He said they change the sky, but not themselves, those that venture across the sea. It was about moving land. I tried to change it about do it about career change. I think it works. I, don't know. I think it works, but it's, no, I know it, what you're saying. I don't think it works. She's being kind. <laughs> well, I mean, it was tough to do. I was doing it live, James. That was a, like yeah, no, a high I, wire. I appreciate act. the effort, like, but. I mean, this is a, what a yes and environment. Uh, <laughs> I think I've got a toxic podcast partner. I think one thing which really came across to me in the book was the work that I do is sort of taking, you know, the sort of practices that James does in uh, the ethical society of building congregation and the things that we developed at Sunday Assembly that we call lifefulness and showing that actually it can be done in the workplace of you know, because the things which people are bringing it up are it's the stuff of being human like it, the the things which uh, uh they're describing about like a human interaction how to interact with your colleagues the things that people are bringing like having a difficult relationship with your boss those sorts of conversations are the sorts of conversations that you want to uh, enable people to have in a healthy community. But there was one section which I absolutely loved, and I'd love to dive into it, which is don't bring your whole self to work. Because bringing your whole self to work is something you get, you see at all these companies, and you're like, if people brought their whole selves to work, the company would collapse in a week. People don't even know who they're, if people brought their whole selves to themselves, they'd get freaked right? out. It's the dumbest thing. <laughs> I'm like, I appreciate the sentiment, but oh my God. It's like, could you bring less of yourself to work? <laughs> Actually, <laughs> could you just bring like a little, a little fraction? Yeah, it's that, I mean, I had never really heard that until I was, I was at Google and I write in the book about how it was like my first day at like the big orientation. And, you know, this very, you know, very powerful woman got on stage and was talking about how wonderful it is to work somewhere that you, where you can bring your whole self to work. And I hand goes up in the audience. I masturbate with my finger up my ass. Sorry. No, no, no. That. We need something totally different. Thank you for to sharing. You. <laughs> <laughs> Not I hate, I hate people of that ethnicity to my left. No, not that thing. either. This is the thing is that they don't, I'm like, you couldn't handle you couldn't handle it. It's the same with saying like, we totally like get mental health. Like, do you? Because as soon as it's not just like mild anxiety and depression, if it's like something much more serious, if it's schizophrenia, if you have suicidal thought, any of that, they're like, oh, not that, <laughs> not the deep mental health stuff. We just mean, you know, just feeling a bit sad, but not now in the past, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I hate the the whole bring your whole self to work. Cause as you said, 
so many of us don't even understand our whole selves. We probably spend our whole lives trying to understand our whole selves. Um, and people are, people are messy and complicated and as they should be right. But in a work environment where your purpose is to like get shit done, to do something, to work towards a common goal, whatever it is, there's not enough space in a building for everyone's whole selves and a company who invites you to do that while they appreciate the sentiment, while they appreciate that they want you to be authentic. Um, you need to be like the professional version of your authentic self. And that can mean so many different things at so many different places. And I think if we learned how to, if we were better with boundaries, if we were better with, you know, kind of what I, what we call containment. So, okay, you have your mental health issues, you're transparent about it, but you can keep it contained while you're at work. If everyone could just keep their shit contained rather than letting it bleed and ooze all over, all over the place. That's what a toxic working environment is, right? When people can't contain their shit and everyone's anxieties create these wild deadlines for everyone. And, you know, people's idea of success is one thing and it's just a mess. So no, you cannot bring your whole self to work. There's not enough space for it at all. And people don't know what to do with it. Like I, I totally get, I think that that is where workplaces are. And I don't think there'll be any workplace which ever goes and has, brings your whole self to work. But I do think that there is something in what congregational communities do, which allows people to bring, to have those really deep, authentic connections. And it was because you're speaking like, actually, if you, if you brought that stuff, like an environment isn't safe enough. People haven't gone through all the necessary trainings, agreements, managers don't really know how to handle it. But I think that in like healthy congregations, that's what people are, that's what people love about them, that they are able to bring more of themselves to more of themselves to that community than they can often bring even with their own friends and family. And, and so James, I guess that like, if there was, you know, we've had that picture of uh, what sort of the, the place where you can't bring your whole self to work, what would you say are some of the things which, uh, whether it be at the Ethical Society or in other congregations, which uh, people do in order to allow those community members to bring more of their authentic selves, to go and have some of these trickier conversations? What are the things which workplaces would need so that people could be the fuller version of themselves? Firstly, I'm really sympathetic to what you're saying, Kate, in the sense that I'm not sure it's a desirable goal to want to, people to bring everything to the workplace. I, th I think I, I actually I'm a bit skeptical of the idea that we have a, a full self. I think we have many selves and we reveal different parts of ourselves in different contexts. And that's OK. There may not be one context where all of us comes out. And I think that kind of appreciating the multiplicity of identities we carry around. And one of the things that I navigate in my work often is exactly the boundary between the personal and the professional, because part of what I do is give the equivalent of sermons. They're most effective when they relate to some personal story or struggle. I've always found that to be the case. But knowing exactly how much to share of yourself is very difficult. And a lot of people in my line of work make 
big mistakes, sharing too much or sharing too little, so it's not engaging or too much so that the relationship between a leader and a member of the community becomes a different one. Because there are things I would share with my friends I would never share with my congregants, right? So I think the skill is knowing which parts of ourselves to bring to the different spaces in our lives. There may not, I mean, it, it may be it's nice to think that there would be a place where you can bring all of yourself. But I think maybe it's about what you were saying, Sanderson, about safety, about making sure people are know what to expect and are prepared to deal with what people bring, whatever the sort of setting is. Because when you're in a work environment and you're expecting one thing and people bring another thing, that's when I think it can get really potentially harmful for people where they, it, when people's expectations of what's appropriate to share in that space are mix, mismatched. So I think one thing is just be really clear about what is allowed to be shared. And I think that that can help, I don't know. I, again, I've never had a real job, Sanderson. So what do I <laughs> <laughs> I think I just did the thing where I go and uh, ask you the question that uh, I really want to speak about, which is, uh, you know, when, uh, not in that way, when it's like, oh, so uh, do you have any uh, funny stories about uh, going on a holiday in Mallorca? Ask the other person the question, and then you just go, oh, yeah, because I've got one. <laughs> and so that's the sort of... <laughs> Funnily enough, no, I, I, I do, do have. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think that the things which really struck home with me was like this idea of safety and this idea of really establishing the, you know, what is expected. And then that is, that's the contract. And then having the, some of the processes in place, which allow people to safely bring that up to then go and say, well, look, not only can you bring this up, like as much as you think is appropriate for this workplace, uh, but, but then also to that, that isn't just information which is given out, but it is, it's something that you can work on. Like it's a place where you can grow. So like a workplace where you can, if you're just saying, oh, by the way, uh, I'm dealing with this and people go, oh, great. You know, that's sort of good, but like there's, a uh it's it's uh someone we speak about on the podcast relatively often robert keegan the developmental psychologist from harvard who whenever i mention him james goes oh bob oh i studied with him uh because he's got to he's got to constantly mention he went to harvard and and he didn't he didn't mention it then but then i just constantly really mischaracterizing him it's a lot of fun uh and uh <laughs> but th then he talks about this idea of deliberately developmental organizations and that is this thing of like if you want people to go and bring this stuff like it can become an engine of personal growth and professional growth if you say oh, by the way, I've realized that I've got imposter syndrome. And so people say, okay, that's, I feel safe hearing that. Here are some ways that we could structure things into your work, which would challenge that belief. Some of the things which congregations do, I see in this idea of the deliberately developmental organization, which, which actually makes this idea of the fact that we're all working on stuff, uh, not a something to be avoided, but something to be leaned into, uh, to use a, uh, an, a phrase, which has been, uh, it's gone. It's, it's gone from, uh, that book has really taken a dive in reputation. It, hasn't it did quite swiftly. I feel, um, but what, what you were saying about, you know, the purposely like developmental, uh, environment, that you're working in uh this is where 
having uh, emotionally intelligent, robust, transparent, authentic, kind of seasoned in a way, leadership figures that can do the dance of knowing how much to share that is appropriate, of knowing uh, when to be honest and when to be completely honest and who it's okay to be that honest with. People who can really uh, set the example of that and therefore uh, kind of set the framework and the kind of clear kind of expectations of what's okay and what's not okay to share, to talk about how to behave. That's why those people are so important and why I think a lot of workplaces are so messed up is because we have a completely um, skewed view of who should be uh, a manager, who should be leading a team, who should be leading a company. It's really difficult. It's a really difficult thing to kind of, to get right. It's a huge thing and not, and not everyone can, can do that dance well. Um, and I think that that's a huge reason why things can get so messy. Um, and oh, I just remembered it's because as well in this kind of new way of working where things are like, yeah, we're just like a startup and we're totally laid back and we have pizza and whatever. And you have like these younger um, entrepreneurs who are now like leading a company and setting a tone and they themselves might be really informal. Uh, and then that sends a completely weird message to the intern or the people who are just entering the workforce on how to behave at work. Um, and I think that that's a big reason why the kind of hierarchy of what you share and what you don't share and, and how to behave is so confused as well is because we have the kind of tone is, it's, it's tone deaf in a way. It's so interesting because I feel like I, I had a real crash course in some of those things when I became a high school teacher. It was my first real job out of college and what a job did you write out of college my oh i know <laughs> well and that just makes you a target <laughs> and i did i did the british version of teach for america so they they gave you six weeks training in the summer between university and so you graduate you go to the six-week training camp and then you're teaching in a classroom on your own uh, the high school students are just terrifying. Just, oh my awful. gosh. It, and I was, I was <laughs> the skills. But what I felt I would do was I would be their friend, right? I would be the nice teacher. Yeah. Total failure. And and that was a really call me James. No need to call me Mr. Croft. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I did that. And then I got in trouble on my first day. Um so you you were right, Kate. That was like, yeah, I, I was like James, you know, whatever. J-Dog, whatever you want to call me. Uh, repeat what they called me. Um, but so, sitting on his chair, back to front, standing on the desk. How did you know? Uh, we did a whole standing on the desk thing. <laughs> so, but I've now become, I feel like, I feel like I'm so old in a way or old fashioned because I'm like, no, you need hierarchy. You need clear rules. You need a certain level of formality. You need a, you, you need a clear expectations. I've gone totally the other direction, not hopefully in like a super strict like way, but, but with, with a certain amount of clarity comes the comfort for people to know what's expected of them so that they can do their best. But I, but, I wanted to ask you a question, Kate, before we lose you, which is that your career must have changed significantly since the publication of your book in January, right? So it seems to have been a big success. Like, how has it changed your work life? And how do you like it? It's been, it's been weird. I think <laughs> I had a lot happen in a very short space of time. I, 
Um, I uh, just had a baby in March, early March. Um, so I kind of finished up my freelance client work in January, uh, weeks before my book was published. My book was published. Uh, I launched a podcast at the same time. Um, I worked, 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 worked. Um, and then I had a baby and then, and then my dad unfortunately passed away a few days after that. So I was in a very strange space of having a newborn, grieving, and those two things shouldn't really happen at the same time. And yet for me, they did. Um, I had to have a C-section, which um, is, you know, major abdominal surgery, and I wasn't expecting to have that happen. And just all of these things made it to where I wasn't just like holding a baby and recording a podcast like I thought that I was going to. Um, so I've been doing book promotions still. I've been, you know, doing speaking engagements. But to be honest with you, I'm in this space right now where I'm like, I don't, I don't know what I'm, I don't know what I'm doing because I've never been an author before. Um, my podcast is on hold at the moment because everyone's still working from home. We're still in a pandemic and uh, these things aren't cheap to do and to produce well. And when you have a noisy newborn in the house, it's also, uh, it's a little bit time consuming. Um, so yeah, I would like to go, yeah, my book has just been a roaring success. So I'm just like super busy doing that. But uh, the reality is uh, I'm trying to figure, I'm trying to figure out what it is that, that I'm, what I'm doing, what I have time for, what um, not having formal childcare yet, uh, how that kind of works. I have my newborn in the next room with my husband who's in between meetings. It's a, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's a, uh, not what I expected, but I find that nothing ever is. <laughs> I've, I've read a really good book, which, uh, and chapter seven in it is, uh, it's all about like helping you plan what you actually want to do in your career. Yeah. I might need to, so, I might need to read that book. <laughs> what a mindfuck. What a situation to, uh, well, I was, what a situation to find yourself in, but what mindfuck is more economical, yeah. uh, and really does it. Yeah. They uh, say, they always say about ministers is that you preach the sermon that you need to hear. And maybe you wrote the exact book that you need to read. I honestly, I um, there's there's things that I'm I'm finding myself saying again, but with a different context, um, with this kind of new this new territory, this new space that I that I'm in. So I think uh, maybe perhaps going back and reading my own book <laughs> might be a, might be useful. <laughs> The million different things you need to do, like have you like I've written a book. Oh, now I need to. Oh God, now I've got a new job, which is talking about the book and doing X, Y, and Z. And uh, it's uh, and and you could always do more. And I think that's one of the tricky things is that a lot of people, a lot of us find ourselves in who might be solopreneurs, freelancers, whatever it might be, uh, you know, but running your own company, being within a company, because then you've got to have your side projects. And also whilst this is happening, whilst you're sort of looking at all the infinite amount of work you've got to do, you've also got to immediately apologize that you're very lucky to be in that situation. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> but the, it, like the, the pressure is sort of from yourself, like, let's not like, it's like suddenly the manager, the bad manager is your own mind, but also you kind of got to do a lot of that stuff in order to go and pay the bills. Cause there'll be someone else who is doing it. So it is a, 
uh, yeah, it's a sort of uh, leaving the office doesn't mean that we necessarily leave these challenges, uh, not by a long shot. No, not by any means. And it's, uh, yeah, it, it really, I mean, when you have figure out figuring out what it is that you want and figuring out how finances play into that, because that's a huge part of it that no one really likes to talk about because it's uncomfortable. It's not sexy at all to talk about finances and money and paying your bills. Um, but, you know, figuring out your relationship with with money, I think is so important because when you're operating um, under stress and just kind of needing to go paycheck to paycheck, and sometimes we under overestimate how much money it is that we think that we need. And then we end up saying yes to things for the sake of money when we don't actually need it. And then it makes our life so much worse than it actually needed to be. Like it's, it's really complicated and, and working for yourself is not easy. And there are a lot of times where I desperately miss just a paycheck, <laughs> knowing how much money I'm going to make it on the same day, every single month. I, I love that, but I hate everything else that comes with it. So a real, a really hard, like, oh God, I know that I loved that. I loved having a bonus, but God, I was miserable. God, I'm miserable. I just can't do it. So uh, how can people go and find your book? Yeah. So um, how to work without losing your mind. Um, it's in the UK it, and also in the Netherlands. Um, it's on Amazon. And I know people are like, shop local and i'm like yes but also realistically it's on amazon you know it's on kindle it's on audible you can get it next day like go to amazon if you can go to into a waterstones it's probably there as well but you know and so james uh what did you take away from that convo i love that conversation i've been thinking a lot about work and work life mm. recently partly because of how so many of our work lives have changed dramatically over the past year and a bit. And partly because just the need to learn how to do tons of new stuff and to think differently about work really brought to mind how much of my life I think about work and spend in the workspace. And what was lovely about talking to Kate is that she asks us to kind of reassess that and be mindful about how we approach our work and bring more of our values and our identity into it. And I really like that. I really loved your point actually about the boundaries of work and sort of personality, because the, I think that there's so much that companies can learn the, from congregations about cre creating closer relationships, but then it is like, how does that then go and play out with the sort of appropriate boundaries? And then there's, I think there's probably as much to learn from how on the professional side, how clergy relate to each other, because there you're sort of, you are probably able to be a bit more open than you are with your community but you're sort of also, it's also is a professional thing. So I don't know, it was just something about, okay, it's like what can be learned from the community, but then also what can be learned from how clergy go and relate to each other, which probably has got things to learn uh, for uh, other lessons to learn for that sort of boundary of the sort of deeply intentional and the professional. Yeah, it's, it is an intensely interesting area because you've got your relationship with your congregation 
And then you've got your relationship with your colleagues kind of about your congregation. And it's not like we get together and talk shit about our members or anything, but it is certainly possible to share things with professional colleagues that you can't share with your members. And navigating the different professional relationships is quite complex and interesting. Oh, I loved that chat. Uh, Kate Sevier is so much fun. Yeah, it's just really good to be able to, I sometimes forget how cool it is to just be able to get in touch with people who are interesting, have these conversations, and bit by bit get to know folk from uh, all over the world. And uh, yeah, if you've got any questions about your work, uh, or you sometimes think, oh, actually, this lifefulness thing, uh, I'd quite like to hear a bit more about how it can go and work in a company, an organization, or a school. Yeah, reach out, go and ask us that. And if you Again, want a bit more? We always have the Lifefulness community, which uh, you can go and find out uh, about uh, uh, underneath this podcast. So thanks so much for listening, and I will see you. I'm not going to see you. I'll speak to you next week. All right, then. Bye.